You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. That story that we just heard read from Luke 9 uh, is often called the transfiguration. It's an important and famous and totally bizarre story. If you're new to the Bible, you would be skeptical of stories like this, I would imagine. Maybe if you're old to the Bible, you're still wondering like, what the heck is this? It starts out pretty normal. Jesus takes some disciples up on a mountain to pray and they fall asleep. None of that is surprising. But then while Jesus is praying, his face is transfigured. His body is transfigured, which means it's, it's dramatically altered. And then Matthew says his face was shining like the sun, like that kind of altered. On top of that, Moses and Elijah, who have been dead for hundreds of years, are there on the mountain with Jesus. And they too have some kind of glorified appearance. And when the disciples wake up, this is what they see. The three of them are just talking like, no big deal. But it's clearly a big deal. Peter is like, man, this is, I'm glad that I'm here. This is good. I like this. He wants to keep the party going. And so he starts talking about building tents for them. And uh, while he's talking, a cloud comes down on the mountain and overtakes them. And then God, the voice of God comes out of the cloud. And then the cloud lifts up and Moses and Elijah are gone and it's just Jesus. What is happening here? Even if you believe this happened, which I do, you still might be wondering, but why did this happen? What, like, what is the purpose of this event? There's probably a lot of good answers to that question, but I think one helpful thing is to know where this event falls in the sequence of the narrative. Matthew and Mark and Luke all put this story of transfiguration in the same sequence of events, in the same order. And so here's the sequence. I'll just give it to you real quick. Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. That's good. His understanding of that is still being formed, which we see in the next event. Jesus begins to talk about how he's gonna go to Jerusalem and suffer and die and be raised on the third day. Matthew and Mark tell us that Peter rebukes Jesus for saying that. That's not his idea of the Messiah. Then, of course, Jesus rebukes Peter for rebuking him. You shouldn't do that. And he tells Peter, hey, your mind is not on the things of God. It's on the things of man. And then Jesus tells everyone, hey, anyone who would come after me must deny himself, must take up his cross daily and follow me. About a week after that little conversation, that's when Jesus takes the three guys up the mountain to pray where the transfiguration happens. After they're up there, they come down the mountain. And in all three accounts, again, they meet a man whose son has been oppressed and possessed by a demon. And the disciples are like, we got this. We've done this before. They try to cast the demon out and they can't do it. And so Jesus does it for them. And then he announces again, begins to talk about how he's gonna suffer and die and be raised on the third day. That's the sequence of events. And as you can hear, the the point of emphasis in the sequence is that following Jesus is not going to be easy. It's going to be hard. Uh, You're going to get rebuked. 
You are gonna have certain ideas about God that aren't true, that are gonna get corrected. You're gonna have to deny yourself and take up your cross daily. You're going to uh, encounter spiritual powers that are greater than you, that you can't conquer. You're gonna have to depend wholly on Jesus. You're gonna have to grapple with all this talk of suffering and death. It's hard. All the stuff in there is hard. In the middle of all that hard stuff, there is this one high point, a literal high point, up on a mountain, above all the troubles of the world below. And a spiritual high point, they get a glimpse of the glory of God in Christ a moment they will never forget. And that was the point. Jesus is taking them up, revealing something to them that they would never forget because this moment, no matter how hard it gets following him, will be fuel for the journey. That's why God did it. He wants to assure them that following Jesus is worth it. And he wants to assure us today that taking up our cross, denying ourselves, and following him is so worth it. It's worth it because Jesus is and reveals the glory of God. It's worth it because he leads us into true glory. It's worth it because he alone is our only hope of glory. I just gave you my three points. Did you catch that? Write them down. Let's look at the first one. Jesus reveals the glory of God. Luke 9, verse 28 and 29. Now, about eight days after these sayings, these sayings are all that stuff we just talked about, about suffering and dying and following him. He took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. Okay, I assume you read online articles. You know how when you're reading an online article, throughout the article, there'll be like hyperlinks to other articles that if you did that, I don't know if anybody actually does that, but if you did that, those articles would, would enrich your understanding of this article. You'd have a better, more well-rounded understanding of what's going on in this article. But the Bible does that kind of thing. It uses symbols and patterns and repeated words and phrases to hyperlink to other stories in the Bible. And there's a lot in this passage, but here's one. Up on the mountain is a hyperlink. It's connecting what's going on here to all the other stories of God meeting with people on mountains. There's a lot of them. And throughout the Bible, the mountains are like this place where heaven meets earth. For example, the Garden of Eden, I don't know if you knew this, is a mountain. It's like a garden temple mountain and God dwells there with his people and his people are like priests. They're supposed to work it and keep it. They work and keep the garden and then they're supposed to expand the garden so that the whole earth is full of God's glory. As the biblical story progresses, mountains and temples and garden imagery, all of this kind of gets woven together to represent God's presence with his people. For example, in Ezekiel 28, he recalls the garden of God and calls it the holy mountain of God. In the New Testament, this holy mountain, this city of God gets linked with the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, 
So in Revelation 21, John says he was taken away to a high mountain and he sees the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem coming down on this high mountain. And he says, I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God, the almighty and the lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives its light and its lamp is the lamb. And if you keep reading that, there's all kinds of garden imagery in there. You don't have to remember any of that. Here's the point. The story of the Bible begins in a temple mountain garden, and it ends in a temple mountain garden where God dwells with his people. The story in between those two things is the story of humanity's fall into sin and our exile from the presence of God. And then God's action, his redemptive work to save us from our sin and restore us to our true glory in his presence. You could tell that whole story through mountain scenes, from Adam to Moses to Abraham to Solomon. They all met with God on mountains, and they all point to Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate place where heaven meets earth. This is why the apostle John, who was on this mountain, writes in John 1, The word of God, the heavenly word, the eternally existent one came and dwelt among us. He took on flesh. He tabernacled, he templed here and we saw his glory. He's where heaven and earth meets. See, all of these threads are coming together in Jesus. He's the true and better temple. He's the mediator of a new covenant. With him, We are in the presence of God. That's what he wants to teach these guys up on the mountain. So when Luke says they went up on a mountain to pray, he's preparing us for something pretty special. Verse 32 says, Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Just parentheses. That's a pretty great image of what it means to become a Christian, isn't it? To to have God all around us, but be totally asleep and blind to it. And then by his spirit to become awake and to see his glory in our midst. In a nutshell, that's just what it means to become a Christian, FYI. All right. They knew the stories of Moses going up on the mountain, coming down with his face all glowing But this was different than that. When they saw his glory on this day, it wasn't like that. Moses' face was shining because he was reflecting the glory of God. He had been in the presence of God and it was like a bright sunburn. He was reflecting it. The shining face of Jesus is not a reflection. It's a revelation of who he is, who he has always been. He is the eternally glorious one. They're getting a peek into that. Philippians 2 says that Jesus existed in the form of God, but took on flesh. He he was found in the form of a servant, found in human form. And so this flesh that he took on veiled his true nature, his true glory. But on this mountain, he pulls back the veil and they get to see him as he is. Hebrews says he is the radiance 
of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. It's also a foretaste of things to come. They would see his glory again in resurrection. We will all see his glory in his return. We will stand face to face with Jesus. And however hard the journey has been, in that moment, before the one who was and is and will be without end, we will know it was totally worth it. Paul puts it like this in Romans 8. He says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not even worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Jesus pulls back the veil and says, guys, get a look at this. Let Just burn this into your mind and heart. Don't forget it. Because when it gets hard, I want you to know it's worth it. And why does it get so hard? John Piper puts it this way. He says, you and I know from experience that the root conflict in the human soul is between two glories. The glory of the world and all the brief pleasures it can offer versus the glory of God and all the eternal pleasures it can offer. These two glories compete for the allegiance, admiration, and delight of our hearts. You would think, having been up on the mountain, seeing what they saw, it's like, man, they would never fail again. In one of the Gospels, it tells us, like, on the way down the mountain, they're arguing about which of them is the greatest. Again, they're doing that. And then, of course, Peter's denial. I mean, there's all kinds of failure. See, there's competing glories down from the mountain. And so, you should ask yourself, what, what is competing in your heart for the place of God? What's competing with the glory of God in your life? Riches, power, success, approval. Those are, those are imaginary treasures. The real treasure is Jesus. His kingdom is like a treasure buried in a field that when a man found it, he, he covered it up and he went and he sold everything he had. There was no riches, there was no power, there was nothing that was worth keeping. He got rid of it all so he could buy the field. Jesus is the real treasure. He reveals the glory of God. Second, he leads us into true glory. Look at verse 30. Disciples wake up, they see Jesus, and behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. All right, I don't want to get too, too deep in the weeds here, but uh, there are a number of things in this section of Luke that are intentionally paralleling the Exodus story and Mount Sinai in particular. So just to give you, if you're a Bible nerd, this will be fun for you. If you're not, sorry about that. But in both stories, in Exodus and in this section in Luke, Moses and Jesus perform signs and wonders. In both, Moses and Jesus go out into the wilderness and they're followed by a multitude of people. The feeding of the 5,000, which we looked at, is a food miracle that is connected to or makes us think of God's provision of manna in the wilderness. These are not coincidental. 
Luke wants us to, to think about how what's going on on this mountain is connected to the Exodus story and Mount Sinai in particular. It's a hyperlink. He wants to deepen our understanding of what's happening here. When God brought Israel out of slavery, he brought them to Mount Sinai. This is, this is where he gave them the Ten Commandments and made a covenant with Israel. In Exodus 24, Moses takes Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu up on the mountain to meet with God. And here, look what happens. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on the mountain to meet with God, and I think they would, I think they would have that in mind. I think they would be like, dude, this is like when Moses took Aaron and that's us, that's us. I, think they, I don't know why they fell asleep after that, but I think they would be pumped about that. The two Old Testament figures most associated with Mount Sinai are Moses and Elijah. They're the only two people who fasted for 40 days and then went up on Mount Sinai to meet with God. And now here they are with Jesus on this mountain. On Mount Sinai, in Exodus 34, Moses asks to see the glory of God. And God's like, well, that's a a good request, son. But listen, if you see my face, you'll die. Anybody who sees my face dies, so we can't do that. And this is what God does. He puts him in the cleft of a rock. He covers over him, covers his eyes, and he passes by. And as he passes by, he uncovers, and Moses just gets to see the back of God's glory, which is awesome. But here on this mountain, Luke says the appearance of his face was altered. They get to see his face. Moses gets to see his face. Elijah gets to see it. This is the fulfillment of everything that Moses and Elijah had longed for. And the disciples are there. They're seeing it. Now, what are Moses and Elijah doing here? They're not just there to see the glory. What what are they doing? Well, they're talking to Jesus. What are they talking about? His departure. And this word, departure, literally is the word exodus. Exodus is the biblical motif for deliverance and salvation and glory. And so they're not just talking about his death. They're talking about his death as part of a new exodus that would include death, but also resurrection and ascension. He's leading God's people into glory, just as Moses led them into the promised land. The Exodus story is about God raising up Moses to deliver his people, lead them to Canaan. And the new Exodus story is about God sending his son Jesus to deliver his people and to lead them the promised land. It's beautiful. Alistair Roberts, who's a theologian and writer, says this about the new Exodus. By his death and resurrection, Christ tears open the sea of death and hell, allowing all his people to pass through unscathed while drowning all their pursuers behind them. Paul says, he has delivered us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have forgiveness, the redemption of sins. That's the exodus. That's where he's leading us. Moses and Elijah represent Israel's hope 
for glory. And here they are talking to Jesus about his exodus. He is the one who will lead God's people into true glory. Now, the tension for the disciples, and I guess for us, is that the path to glory goes down the mountain through Jerusalem. The path to glory will involve suffering and death before it is resurrection and ascension. But it has to. To save us from our sin, Jesus has to become a sacrifice for our sin. To conquer death, he has to experience death in our place. This is how he leads us. He humbles himself and he gives himself up for us. It's the path to true glory. It's not up the mountain. It's down the mountain. But it's worth it. This is why the biblical writers, think like James 1, Romans 5, and other places, can say things like, we rejoice in suffering. That's a crazy thing to say. Nobody likes suffering. Nobody wants it. I don't, they're not telling us to look for it or like it. They are saying, but we can rejoice in it. Why? Well, because, and you know this, if you've suffered in any way, it, it draws you nearer to, to God. It, it heightens your sense of need and weakness and dependence upon God. And when you get drawn nearer to God, Paul says what that does is it produces in you this endurance. It becomes fuel for the journey. And that endurance gives you character and that leads to this hope that can't be shaken. See, that, that's the third thing. He reveals the glory of God. He leads us into true glory through the new exodus. And he alone is our hope of glory. Look at verse 33. As the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we're here. Let's make three tents. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And he was saying these things, as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Now, as we talk about Jesus being our only hope of true glory, or of glory, uh, it's important to talk about what hope is. Hope for the Christian is not wishful thinking. It's not a bumper sticker. It's not a platitude. It's not any of that. Hope for the Christian is based on, and hope for anyone really, is based on authority, ultimately. For us, it's based on the authority of God that what he says is true and that what he promises will come to pass. That's what gives us confidence or hope. And so here in this story, we're going to, we're going to see that Jesus has that kind of authority. His words are God's words. He, he's the Lord, to this point in the story, the disciples haven't said anything, which makes sense. I mean, what are you gonna say? They take a nap, they wake up, and Jesus and Moses and Elijah are talking to each other. This is like, I don't know, Dr. J and Michael Jordan and LeBron James having a conversation about basketball and me being like, hey, let's talk hoops. You know, you, would, you just don't do that. Let them talk. 
I have a rule that I learned the hard way, and the rule is don't ever talk to a famous person. Like out in public, randomly, you see somebody famous, don't. You have nothing to say. <laughs> I used to be a huge Counting Crows fan back when Counting Crows was cool, and, and back when I was cool. And um, I saw Adam Duritz in the airport one time, and it, it just was like, it, I, before I could think about it, I was, I was next to him, and I was like, hey, I like your music, man. You know, like that, I had nothing to say. I don't know Adam. I just like his music. So I think even for Peter, there's nothing to say here. It's Jesus, it's Moses, it's Elijah. What's he gonna do? He'll walk up and say, hey, Moses, dude, I'm a huge fan. Like that parting the sea thing was awesome. Remember that? You know, <laughs> there's nothing to say. This is not a conversation you wanna interrupt at all. And they don't. They just, they just behold it. They just take it in until it's over. When Moses and Elijah get ready to leave, Peter's like, whoa, 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 we don't, no, no, we don't have to leave. And so he starts talking like, hey, if lodging is your problem, I, I can take care of that. I got, I'll build these three tents. You can each have your own place. We can hang out here. Moses wants to, I mean, Peter wants to stay up on the mountain, wouldn't you? These tents, a lot of people think it's kind of in reference to the Feast of Booze or Feast of Tabernacles which is a glorious celebration of God's provision for Egypt in the wilderness. And so Moses, or Peter is like feeling the Exodus vibes. He, he wants to celebrate. He wants to keep this going. And so while he's talking about that, keeping all this going, Luke says, yeah, Peter, Peter didn't know what he was saying. It's well-intended. He means to honor them, but it's, but it's really short-sighted. Here's why it's short-sighted. He wants to honor them like kind of this Feast of Booths type of theme, but to build the same tent for all of them would be to honor them as equals. But Jesus is not just another Moses or another Elijah. He's the fulfillment of everything that they represent. He deserves supreme honor and worship above them, and Moses and Elijah would be the first to agree. Here's the other thing. Peter wants to hang on to this glory on the mountain. I think if, he, if Jesus never ended the party, Peter would still be there. He just, this is what he wants. But it's short-sighted. This glory on the mountain is just a preview. It's just a foretaste. To keep Jesus up on the mountain is to keep him from Jerusalem and the cross and the resurrection and the ascension from the road to true glory. Peter would sacrifice true glory for this, this little moment he's got. It's short-sighted. These things become very clear here in just a minute. Look at verse 34. As he was saying these things, as Peter's talking about the tents, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. I love this so much. Peter is trying to build a tent for Jesus and God comes down in a cloud. The cloud is another Exodus theme. The cloud is the presence of God's glory. 
He came to Mount Sinai in a thick cloud. He filled the temple with the cloud of his glory so that nobody could go in. Peter wants to build a tent as if that could hold the glory of God. And God is like, no, I got a tent for you. Here's the glory cloud. Peter's trying to honor Jesus as a great prophet, but God says, no, 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 this is my son. My chosen one. It's a reference to Deuteronomy 18, 15. Moses said that the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you and you shall listen to him. And that's what God says here. Listen to him. They should immediately realize this is, this is the true and better Moses. This is the one that God said he would raise up. We need to listen to him. Moses received the words of God, but Jesus is the word of God. He's the Lord. He has total authority and reign in the world and in your life. To follow him is to totally submit to his word in obedience, which is like denying yourself and taking up your cross. And it is also totally worth it. There's no other way but listening to him. He's the only hope of glory. When the cloud is removed, who's there? The only one. Peter wants Moses and Elijah to stay, but the point of this mountain is that Jesus fulfills everything that Moses and Elijah represent. He fulfills all the mountains of the biblical story. He's the new Adam. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation, Paul says. He is the greater Moses who brings a greater covenant. John says that the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. He's the greater Elijah. Elijah, as you, know, you might know, was, was, he didn't die. He was taken up into the heavens in a chariot of fire, which is awesome. And he was expected to return in the last days, but Jesus is taken up, ascends in a cloud, and he will return to judge the earth and to make all things new. He's the greater Elijah. He is the true temple. In John 7, there's this amazing story. Uh, they're celebrating the Feast of Booths, actually, which is a connection to what Peter wants to do with these tents, I think. And during this feast, every day, the priests would draw water from the Pool of Shalom and they would walk in procession to the temple. And they would quote passages from the prophets about streams of water that would one day flow from the temple, like streams of water, like rivers in Eden. These waters would cleanse and nourish the people. And then the priests would pour out the water into the basins near the altar in the temple. This would happen every day. And Jesus watches this happen every day. And on the last day of the feast, he stands up and he says, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And I will give him, out of him will flow streams of living water. All the symbols, all the threads, all the patterns, all of it points to and is fulfilled in Jesus. If anyone wants to be in the presence of God, come to me. If anyone wants to feast on the word of God, come to me. 
I will give you the Holy Spirit and he will move in and through you like streams of water. If you want to experience the presence, the power of God, if you want to walk with him faithfully to the end, no matter how hard it gets, come to him and drink. Look at this story. See Jesus going up the mountain with Peter. Peter, who a week ago he had just rebuked. And see his grace. His patience, it covers our failure. We can, we can come up the mountain with him. See Jesus, the Son of God, on the mountain praying. What humility, what dependence. It ought to melt our pride and assure us that we, we can come to him. See Jesus going down the mountain to Jerusalem and the cross and see that his suffering gives meaning to our suffering. Whatever we're going through, we can come to him. Hear the voice of God saying, right now, this is my son. Listen to him. Don't harden your hearts. Listen to him. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and walk in his ways. It's so worth it. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.